Hello and welcome to the C21 podcast. My name's Nico Franks. This week's podcast comes to you from Los Angeles, where last Friday C21 held its networking event and conference, Content LA. Future trends, new opportunities in the market, and fresh partnerships in the international content business all went under the spotlight at the event, which included speakers from companies such as Hulu, AMC, CBS Studios International, Globo, and Sony Pictures Television. Unsurprisingly, the ongoing standoff between the Association of Talent Agencies and the Writers Guild of America, that is the talk of Hollywood at the moment, came up numerous times throughout the day. For the uninitiated, the dispute hinges on the Guild's new code of conduct, which requires ATA members to eliminate the TV packaging fees they currently charge for bundling talent and bringing projects together. More than 7,000 of the Guild's members, including some of its most high-profile writers, have fired their agents after members of the ATA, including the big four agencies, refused to sign the new code. A lively panel at Content LA may not have solved the issue by any means, but it did throw up plenty of interesting suggestions about some of the potential underlying causes behind the conflict, namely the havoc, both good and bad, that companies like Netflix and Apple are wreaking on the Hollywood establishment. C21's editorial director, Ed Waller, spoke to veteran talent agent Tracy Christian, president at LA-based boutique talent agency TCA Management, after the panel, to get her thoughts on the dispute what's caused it, and whether it's simply coming down to money. Well, it's Hollywood, so everything ultimately comes down to money. But there's issues of power. There's issues of, basically, my understanding is that the writers say, in packaging uh, projects, one, there's a, that agents should be conflicted out. Uh, and two, writers feel like the funds or the fees that agencies collect for you know, creating a package belong to the writers. I think those are what the major issues are. And do you agree with them? I do not. I do not. I think if you do the work, you deserve the reward. Um, packaging is a way, and look, and a package doesn't just have to be with a writer. Traditionally, it's two or three elements that lift a contingency that would allow a studio network whatever to move forward with that project so that can be the actor it can be the director it could be a producer that the entity wants to be in business with and of course it could be the writer so writers are just possibly one of the elements so if they're just one of the many elements why do they deserve the package? There, there's also a question that, uh, there are several things that no one is talking about here. If we've been existing in this way for, what is it, 30 years, why are we changing today? Like you, if we've been conflicted out for 30 years, it, you can't be a little pregnant. Like the practice was fine two months ago, two years ago, but all of a sudden today it's not. One potential outcome of the dispute is that a new normal will emerge where writers circumvent agents and have direct relationships with the studios, networks and international channels. Here's what Tracy had to say about that. Okay, so we are, agents are handicappers, brokers, uh, you know, we're the negotiators. I don't see them kind of legislating us out of existence, but the writers have a number of salient points, right? They are right that the business does have to change, that there are some, um, there are some business practices by certain agencies or agents that are unsavory. 
there has to be more more transparency in transactions with talent that you represent. I completely support that, and I support them exercising their rights in the marketplace. I would have handled things a little, you know, differently, but. They're absolutely right. We can't go on in this new economy as we did before. There have to be changes. But I think whenever you're in a negotiation, to certainly say, "Here's the ultimatum you have until end of business today," that's not exactly, you know, bringing all parties to the table. That's not going to provoke the reaction that you want. Particularly when you're speaking to a group of people who thrive on confrontation, right? Think about what it takes to be an agent. You're not the person that's afraid of an argument. You're not the per- right. That's what we do. And for every no that a piece of talent hears, we've heard it 50 times about the person. Correct? So I don't think that's the play that you make when dealing with agents. Looking ahead, what's the what's the worst case scenario here? Then we're we looking at a strike, or companies folding, or agents is selling off their their. Content arms, or what? What's, what are the options? It's it's all of the above. It's a bit like global warming, right? So as we look down the line, we all recognize we got to do something, right? I don't know if the deadline is by the end of the month, you know, the polar caps melt, or if it's five years. But we can't go on as we've been. So look, there are smarter people than me, hopefully, that are meeting in, you know, smoky bars and restaurants and hashing this out.、Uh, You know, I, I don't know. The worst case scenario would be that I'm not going to say it because it could happen. For the writer's perspective, here's Spiros Gensose, who describes himself as a mid-level WGA diverse writer who co-chairs the WGA's LGBT Writers Committee, and emphasised that he isn't speaking on behalf of the guild leadership, but as a writer attending the conference. I ask Spiro how he's been affected by the dispute and how he sees it playing out. What I think is. Important to to mention is that, despite you know this breakup with the agencies, you know no one hates their agent. Agents are you know just work in this system, which is a broken system. And for instance, this season I didn't have an agent going out for staffing, and I had five staffing meetings, which was unprecedented unprecedented for me. So I was really excited about that. You know I even got a pilot set up at a studio, and that was all done with my manager and lawyer. And right now on Twitter. There are several like feeds going on of higher writers endorsing lower writers for staffing, reading their material, reaching out to other writers. People are getting hired off of these Twitter feeds. There are several pages、um, on Google Documents spreadsheets where you can sign up if you're a WGA LGBT or a person of color or a woman. So there are a lot of different opportunities that way. Also, what I think is great is that the Writers Guild website has an opportunity for anyone to check in and find a writer. That they would like to work with a WGA writer, so that you can even toggle in and look for, you know, gender or ethnicity specifics and types of backgrounds that they come from. So any producer anywhere who wants to work with a writer's guild writer does not have a problem getting in touch with them. And in terms of a solution, obviously,、um, it, if anyone, if someone had the right answer, then、um, it would be solved by now. But、right. from your perspective, what do you see as maybe not the solution, but The next step towards a solution. Sure,、um, this is just me speaking. You know what I f- could see happening because obviously I'm not on the negotiating committee and I'm not speaking for the guild. But you know, it seems that you know some of the agencies are already、uh, signing the code of conduct. Verb just signed it. I'm sure other agencies will. I wouldn't surprise me if the larger agencies 
don't, the big four, because, I mean, let's face it, they make money in a bunch of other ways that probably outpaces the money they make from writers. And, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if they start to let go of smaller, of the agents who are lower, you know, aren't the big, big name agents. They can go and form their own agency. They can represent writers. You know, there's always going to be a need to um, have writers, to have storytellers. And it just depends on if you want to be part of the process to help those stories being told to, you know, the studios and networks and streaming services. A lot of the cause of this dispute was put down to kind of um, technological change. So yeah. companies like Netflix and just the way that model of consuming content has changed things in the sense that 22 episode shows are becoming rarer and rarer. Um, and although there might be more series being made, actually for writers, they're writing fewer episodes, yes. so the actual that amount of episodes. That's a I think, of what's going on now. I mean, let's face it, the internet has changed everything for good and bad. I mean, it's the best of times and worst of times. That The music industry, TV representation, but at the same time, the internet brings people together and can really help. It's, been, it's, just, a, it's just a technology. How do you use it? Mm-hmm. And we're trying to find the best way to use it for writers in this time when we don't have agencies working for us. Earlier in the day, Mark Oliver, chairman at UK-based research firm Oliver and Allbaum Associates, had discussed what the three-way global fight between media, telcos, and Silicon Valley will mean for the video content business over the next 10 years. I asked him about whether agents were among the middlemen of the TV industry that he believes the tech companies are increasingly looking to disrupt, and which other sections of the industry are potentially also under threat. Well, the middlemen, I suppose, includes anybody who stands between the content creators and the consumer or the advertiser. So it's a long list everything from the delivery networks to the agents to the individual cable channels. They're all under threat, um, some more than others, um, but that's, that's basically the, the, the threat. Um, different threats to each of them. The cable channels have to reinvent themselves of on-demand services or become premium services. Um, Delivery networks, well, the cable carriers are switching from being TV providers to being broadband providers. So it's broadband with apps rather than a long list of cable channels. Um, probably at lower margin on the TV business, not on the broadband business. Um, the agents are middlemen, but they stick quite close to the content, which is what everybody wants. Clearly there are some arguments going on about what the share of the spoil should be between them and the content creators and how far they should be allowed to go themselves into content creation. And that's what the current argument's about. Um, but yeah, they, they all have to change the way they work. And the program distributors, the people who sell rights around the world, are probably going to have to change their business model um, to actually doing deals and putting together co-funding rather than just taking programs and selling them around the world. Different skill base, different talent needed. Some are quite good at that kind of thing already, some aren't, so they're going to have to change. One talking point that came up numerous times during Content LA was the potential long-term knock-on effect of streamers taking global rights to shows and whether this means the back-end market is also under threat. I asked Mark what traditional broadcasters increasingly looking for more online rights to their shows could mean for lucrative back-end programming deals in markets such as the UK. Well, there's certainly pressure on the back end. The global SFODs want to take all rights globally, so you get one check and that's it, and that's over. The real question is, do you make a good margin on that check or not? And that may be, that depends on how many are competing with each other for the for the for the idea. Um, but certainly, they may all want to have global rights, and that's 
So there's an alternative to that, though, which is to piece together a network of buyers around the world who run the national channels or the regional channels. And that would involve a back-end. It will not necessarily involve a back-end in the two or three countries that put most of the money up, but it would involve a back-end from the other countries and possibly the second window in those countries. And that's how you... But you're going to have to fight for it. You're going to have to fight for preserving the back-end. Um, so I think there will be a back-end market. It's just it's going to be a struggle to, to preserve it. Um, and uh, it will be a continuous battle. Uh, in individual markets where broadcasters want more rights for a primary license like the, the BBC will, um, I think that's more of an individual case-by-case basis. Uh, if there's a promising secondary market in that individual national market, then producers should be able to hold out for not selling all the rights. The fact the BBC can demand, almost demand, the fact that all producers should give it more rights suggests the market's not exactly competitive because if you're in a marketplace, you can't demand that. You can ask for it. The BBC could say we want 12 months on iPlayer and pay more. The fact the BBC is saying we're going to mandate that we have 12 months on iPlayer and that's the only way you're going to get a commission from the BBC suggests the BBC's got some market power because otherwise... They can't do that, can they? You just go and work for someone else. Um, if the BBC is trying to leverage its market power, then I'm sure the people who are supposed to be safeguarding the terms of trade in the UK, like Ofcom, will have something to say about it. Mark also predicted that national VOD services will need to join together with global players like Disney or Warner Media in order to take on Netflix in the future. I asked him why that was. They have to get together in order to have the kind of content range and the capacity uh, the financial strength to take the guys on. But it's not, it's not sufficient because they don't have enough content that's valuable in the pay market. Obviously, they're free-to-air broadcasters. Put that together with the fact a lot of people are chasing the global SFOD market, you know, Disney joining, Warner's joining, um, and you've probably got too many players. So one of my think, thoughts is that what will probably happen is some of those global players will do alliance with some of those local players to create a strengthened product in individual markets. It may not be in every market, but I could see you know, Disney coming together with ITV and BBC in the UK or Salto in France to take on Netflix if their first strategy doesn't work, which is to be just Disney. The same for Warners. Um, so that's me kind of thinking, where is this going to end up with so many people chasing the same market, with national players getting together but still lacking the kind of resources to take on these guys, and with um, too many global platforms chasing the market in the short run it's great for content provider, but in the end there'll be a shakeout and maybe the way that transpires is the global players start to do some deals with local players and basically create an affiliate network I mean a global affiliate network rather than a US affiliate network Elsewhere during Content LA I caught up with writer-producer Jeff Norton to ask him how he's navigating a complex international TV market and zeroing in on content for teens and young adults, which audiences of all ages are increasingly flocking to. We do everything that's scripted, only scripted, from what I call preschool to prime time. Um, And I've got a philosophy, which I've had for a long time, which is just story is story. So whether you're putting a preschool show together for a three-year-old or a really avant-garde, hard-hitting revenge thriller aimed at a 33-year-old, it's still story. And I think everybody loves a good tale. You know, what we do at Awesome is we try and start with books. Um, I'm a big believer that if something works that's black ink on a white page, then it'll probably work in the theater 
on the screen if it's worked in the theater of your mind. One of the areas that I've got a guilty pleasure on is young adult novels. Um, I think the emotional, the emotions run very close to the surface when you're a teenager. Um, and so I think there's a real opportunity to tell stories for a very broad audience that have teenage protagonists because the stakes are so high emotionally. I'll give you an example. We've just, um, I would just announced today, we've just optioned a fantastic book that made me laugh, cry, fall in love. Um, it's a novel by a woman called Cheyenne Young. Uh, she's a Texas-based writer, and she wrote a beautiful book called The Last Wish of Sasha Cade. Um, and it just does everything you want to do in a story, and you run the entire roller coaster of emotions, and I think you make great television. And uh, Young Adult was one of the audiences that uh, Eric Barmack um, singled out as, as there being an opportunity uh, to target when he was discussing what he's up to with his new production company, uh, Wild Cheap Content, today. Um, obviously, Netflix has kind of planted its flag firmly in the ground with that audience. Is it too late for traditional broadcasters to go after that audience now? Because we are seeing them attempt to. I think the challenge is for traditional broadcasters that are advertising funded, the typical ad spend when you go to New York, and we're just coming off the upfronts, typically a, a media buyer or a big company like Procter & Gamble, the profile is what they call female head of household 18 to 49. And that's where the ad dollars are. So if you're trying to make content for a 16-year-old or a 17-year-old or say a, a late stage teenager, but you're hoping you're going to get some 20-somethings or some 30-somethings in, it's really hard to sell ads against that. And so I think one of the reasons we haven't seen a lot of great YA content on screen, on traditional broadcast screens, and there are, there are exceptions. I think Freeform has done a good job. Um, CW has sort of moved in fits and starts. They've actually aged up a lot of their content specifically because of this advertising issue. But the opportunity is really with the streamers because that audience uh, will pay or their parents will pay. But equally and probably more profoundly, and this is what we found in the book world because I also work in publishing, is that actually... People like you and I have got a guilty pleasure with young adult because we were teenagers. We all went to high school. We remember those days. And so if you can tell a story that maybe has a, a young lens, a young point of view, people will watch it even if you can't sell advertising against it. So I think the real opportunity is on the streamers. And so I think I think we'll see more from Warners. I think we'll see more out of Disney+. Plus. I know Hulu is looking for more YA. You know, these streaming services that don't have to uh, cater to advertisers, there's a real opportunity to sort of super serve that niche because they can. I think you're right about the guilty pleasure thing actually uh, a few of, uh, few of us came back to, our, to where we're staying in LA this week uh, to find our colleague one of our colleagues who'll go uh, nameless watching one of these new young adult Netflix series and uh, he quickly you know turned it off as soon as we came in but yeah I think he was enjoying it. You know, it's really funny. In, in the book world, we find that adults reading YA typically read on a Kindle because they don't want to be seen on the subway or the tube reading a quote-unquote kid's book. But they still love it. They still love it. And I think um, a bit what I was saying earlier, like when you're at that stage of life, the st everything is the biggest thing ever. And so for a storyteller, what a great sandbox to play in because the emotions run so high. And it's not to say I'm not interested in doing older stuff. You know, we've got some incredible projects. I'm working with Ruby Rock Pictures on... Um, Looking Glass, which is a, uh, a Victorian-era revenge thriller. Um, but there is just something really cool about telling stories from a, a youthful perspective. That's all we have time for in today's podcast, but I'll be back soon with the thoughts from international buyers at networks around the world as they get to grips with an LA screenings that's been unlike any other 